The following aviation podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast by thepilotreport.com about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 55, Flying Lawn Chairs and Crash Landings with Joe Barbera. Coming up now on this edition of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now, here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Sean Moody, Rick Felty, Carl Valeri, and Len Costa. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Stuck Mike Avcast, episode number 55. I'm your host, Len Costa. Joining me on the show today is my favorite group of aviation airheads, starting with hey. the first air <laughs> starting with the first airhead all the way from uh, his crash pad in New York, joining us again, uh, Mr. Carl Valeri. How are you today, Carl? I'm doing wonderful. Actually, I was just at the store getting ready to buy some airheads. You remember those old candies? I do. Yeah. That's <laughs> funny those you mentioned really that. Really but- good. It's the mystery flavor. It always tastes the same. (laughs) Yeah, I do remember those. I'm doing wonderful today. I I just it's it's been a bit of a challenge, but I'm here in in the uh, crash pad. Flew all the way from Florida just to be here to do this. That's right. uh, Yes, and and I'm excited to be here because I got to I actually get to look at some airplanes while we're doing this. Yes, and as a matter of fact, we did actually uh, just a little precursor since Carl is joining us from the crash pad today. He's actually on call right now as we record. So if his phone rings and he has to leave abruptly for the airport, uh, that's uh, that's why Carl has left us. But uh, hopefully that won't happen. You know, it's, Nope, weather's good. I think we'll be fine. I think it should be okay. So, uh, well, welcome. Glad to have you back on the show today. Yes, yes. Glad to be here. Yes, our... Um, Next aviation airhead, Victoria Zyko from her studio overlooking Frederick, Maryland. How are you today, Victoria? Good. I can't really overlook it right now. It's pretty dark outside, but that is, I, it is I, after. Yeah, it is dark again. I am overlooking um, a cat, a hedgehog, and a puppy. So <laughs> it's a good view. It's a good view, nonetheless. Well, very good. Welcome. Glad to have you. Uh, in fact, the whole gang is here today. Another great show with everybody. Uh, Mr. Sean Moody from his studio in Kentucky. Welcome. Hey, hey, yeah, studio. That's that's pretty generous. I, I think it's just a, I don't know, a makeshift uh, guest bedroom. Guest bedroom, <laughs> and you, you've got the uh, the blanket over your head, trying to <laughs> no, trying to suppress the, vibe, the audio reverberation. <laughs> My wife laughed at me too much. So <laughs> I've done that recording show teasers in a hotel under the blankets in the bed there, just so I wouldn't get the echo. <laughs> yeah, you got to do what you got to do. Well, it's glad glad to have you here, and. Uh, our um, other co-host, Rick Felty, from his studio all the way in Massachusetts. How are you today, Rick? I'm good. Just freshly back from attending the presidential TFR. I heard about that. You were on <laughs> vacation out in the vineyard. and uh, I was, and uh, somebody else was, too. And it's, it's, a fasc- <laughs> it's a fascinating thing. It's very quiet. Very quiet. Not Have a lot of air traffic. Have you seen all the TFRs out? There's like yeah, a whole there's a line bunch. of them. Well, there's like a string that's running from... One well, part of New York coast. State to the other, something. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, it was. Well, the funny thing about it is they've worked out a way that there's a there's a, a company that runs biplane rides out on one part of the vineyard that through a connection with the main airport and dialogue about uh, security with uh, with the Secret Service, they get to fly that one that one biplane. And so you're you're in town and there's just one plane. It's like the town is this small town out of a book where there's just one plane and it flies all the time. Um, it's really kind of odd, but otherwise it was very quiet and you know, it went, everything went well, but yeah, it was a, it was a definitely different, different environment there. Yeah. Yeah. And you got that, uh, the cool photo of the Osprey flying over too. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know who was on board that, but that was right over. (laughs) Who or what, or if it was four legged or two legged. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The new new puppy was flown in. (laughs) Very good. Well, we're glad to have you. The gang's all here today. Uh, we've got a, and actually, uh, we don't. Generally, we try and break up our interview episodes between other content shows, and I know that episode 54 was an interview episode. This one as well, we actually uh, are going to be interviewing a really uh, cool aviator um, with a very, 
I mean, probably one of the most unique flying stories out there. But before we do get started, uh, we've got a couple of announcements. First, starting with Carl. Let's do the pre-flight. Yeah, actually, the uh, announcement I have, and, and I totally forgot about this to the last minute, it's the California Capital Air Show. And for those of you who don't know the capital of California, that would be in Sacramento. Sacramento actually is at Mather Airport, and it's going to be uh, October 5th through 6th. And it's a pretty cool event, and I'll tell you why. They have so many different really neat performers, some of my favorites. Uh, we've got the Snowbirds. If you've never seen the Royal Canadian Snowbirds, they're going to be there, and they are wonderful. Another uh, performer that's going to be there is Franklin's Flying Circus. And remember, Franklin, actually, they have the new Dracula, which is uh, a pretty cool-looking biplane. So that's going to be pretty exciting to see that. And then uh, John Klatt, he's exciting. Uh, you've got the... Uh, Oh, and then uh, a tribute to the Berlin Airlift. So there's some really big, big uh, performers there. Oh, and uh, as a matter of fact, I can never say his last name right. Uh, uh, Who is it? Michael uh, Goulain. Is that how you say it? Uh, Goulain, Goulain, I think. Goulain? Yeah. Michael Goulain. i got to get that right someday. So we're going to get some people writing in saying, come on, Carl, you you should be able to actually uh, pronounce that one. But, oh, and then there's another really uh, (laughs) – But wait, there's more. (laughs) Wait, wait, there's more. I forgot about this. You know know those MiGs? Oh, the – not a MIG. It was uh, the P-51s, the Bremont Horsemen, they're called. They have the Mustang. They have uh, some really cool old, like, uh, Vietnam-era type of, uh, what are they called? Oh, Sabres. That's it. It's a Sabre, F-86 Sabre. That's what they're going to fly, and a P-51 Mustang. So some really, really cool stuff out there. It, it is a big event, and even without having all the big uh, military shows like in the past, they still are going to have a pretty cool show with the, uh, with the Snowbirds and stuff. Actually, I'm, I'm going to try as hard as I can to get out to this because uh, I, I always go to shows on the East Coast and, and some in the Midwest, but I've never been to an air show on the West Coast. And, you know, aviation is pretty darn big in California, and, and I, I definitely want to try to make it out to this one. So hopefully uh, maybe I'll even uh, do a little recording from there if I can make it out there to Sacramento. So, again, it's October 5th and 6th. And it's at Matter Airport, which is, uh, you know, not the main airport, but it's right near downtown, only, I think about 10 miles away. Uh, so, again, check it out. There's some really cool uh, uh, um, air show event information on CaliforniaCapitalAirShow.com, CaliforniaCapitalAirShow.com. Great. Uh, Sean, your announcement. Yeah, coming up in uh, just a couple of weeks, uh, the Georgetown Airport, which is just outside Lexington. It's called the Georgetown Scott County Airport. They're having uh, AirFest 2013. Uh, they say they're expecting between five and 10,000 people, and they're going to have uh, B-25 rides, Huey rides, um, skydivers, that kind of thing. It's not a, not an air show per se, but just sort of a, an aviation celebration. And, of course, in true Kentucky fashion, they also, according to the website, are going to have antique tractors. So come on out. I thought you were going to say uh, bourbon for a minute. <laughs> well, you know, that's for after the air fest. <laughs> um, but it's, uh, let's see, it looks like it gets going at about 11 o'clock on uh, September 14th. So come on out for that. It's about maybe 10 minutes north of Lexington. Unfortunately, I'm going to be out of town that day. Otherwise, uh, I'd be out there, and if we had any, any stuck mic listeners in the area, it would come out and say hi. But uh, I won't be there, but that doesn't mean you guys can't be there. So get on out there. September 14th. Very neat. Yep. Very neat. Well, great. And um, I've got uh, just two quick items as well. I just wanted to kind of reshare on the show today. Uh, two blog posts that are over at stuckmikeavcast.com. The first one is called Stuck Mike. There's a message for that. Uh, This is actually a kind of a brief brief blog post about how you can use uh, or how you can identify on certain types of avionics packages whether or not you have a stuck mic and if you happen to be transmitting in the blind. Uh, The second blog post is called The Quick Guide to Air Traffic Control Facility Codes. That one stemmed from an event that I experienced when I was uh, flying out of Chicago where the, um, the air traffic control center was closed 
for a um, a fire alarm, and it caused a uh, a ground stop in the area. But I didn't understand where the facility was, and I did some research online after, figured it all out, and it's a story of what I found and how to decipher those codes. Both of those are over, available over at stuckmygavcast.com. Check out those blog posts and uh, continue to visit the website for additional blog posts that we'll be adding here in the future as well. Now entering cruise flight. So like I said uh, before the announcements, we have a really, really unique aviator on on the show today. Uh, Somebody who's probably, I think if I understand correctly, one of about only a dozen um, explorers in uh, in history, if you will, in aviation history. Uh, This gentleman is um, an engineer by trade and uh, one of the few lawn chair pilots out there. That's right. You heard me correctly. A lawn chair pilot. Uh, welcome to the show today, Joe Barbera. How are you, Joe? Thank you. And I uh, appreciate being called an aviator. That's quite a stretch. Thank you very much. <laughs> you did fly through the air. Whatever means it got you there, you did You did, uh, You did. did fly. So that's very cool. Um, Joe, uh, we always like to get to know our guests a little bit. I do understand that there is some background, uh, some aviation in your background previously to the actual lawn chair flight event. Um, tell us a little bit about your background in aviation. Sure. Uh, so actually, I, like probably most of you guys, I remember my first flight. I was maybe... 10 or 12 or 13, and my cousin had a friend and had an extra seat and flipped a coin, and I won over my brother, and that was the first time I'd been in an airplane, and it's just kind of one of those things that just, when you change your perspective, it just changes your life, and that was sort of, I can't say I was hooked at that point, but I think it made me a different person. Um, years later, I uh, became a paratrooper, probably have more exits than most people have entrances, that sort of a... Uh, set me up a little bit differently. And then in uh, 1982, this Larry Walters guy did this lawn chair thing, flew into LA airspace, and that's when I got hooked. That's when I got hooked on the whole balloon idea. I was Mm -hmm. not a pilot then. Uh, Eventually, through a variety of circumstances, I did, uh, I got 200 hours, single engine land, learned in a tail dragger. But this idea about the flying in a lawn chair just sort of stuck with me. I wanted to do it. The next day I went to work and I just, I was just so excited about it. And all my engineering buddies just thought it was stupid. You know, I was, it was the dumbest idea in the world, but <laughs> I couldn't let go of it. So I was hooked. Very good. So, uh, so yeah, so if I understand that, it, that was pretty much the, one part of the inspiration. The other being that this was something you also wanted to do to celebrate a major milestone in your life, which was your 60th birthday. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. I'd actually missed it by a day, but, uh, <laughs> That's close enough. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say close enough, right? <laughs> 60 years by one day is close enough. But, uh, well, great. We really, um, really excited to have you on the show today and hear about this adventure. Um, like I said, when I started out, you are, um, you do, um, do work, you know, you're employed as an engineer. So you've probably got some, some of that background helped you, uh, you know, actually build the craft that took you up into the air. So why don't you kind of just tell us about, um, you know, we've got a little bit of background on where you came up with the idea and, and your passion for pursuing it, but why don't you walk us, you know, through the, through the story from start to finish? Sure. Okay. Uh, so let me start with, uh, kind of the objective. When, when I first heard about this, like, you know, I'm an engineer, I can do one better. Right. And my, my goal was, well, I can go around the world when, why not? It's just a question of, you know, what's the leakage rate? How much ballast can you have? Right. It seemed pretty simple. Uh, but like most engineers, you can figure stuff out on pencil and paper before you start building hardware, and that was actually a godsend. Uh, so I kept finding problems with that idea, but you know, I but I kept thinking I could do this, I can do this, and I really like the idea of doing it the way this guy Larry Walters did it. Uh, he just like tied some weather balloons to a lawn chair. He took a radio and he wanted to listen to the ball game floating over the, floating over the desert. That was just as simple as that. It was really just quite basic and and there's a lot of ways i could make a better craft there's lots of ways you can get in the air right but i wanted to do it that way i wanted to do it with cluster ballooning is is the name of a kind of a subcategory but i wanted to do it weather balloons i wanted with a lot of small balloons and i wanted to do it in a lawn chair and actually finding the right lawn chair is not as easy as you might imagine uh and i had this goal i can set uh, the world record possibly too. The world record for distance is only like 268 miles. 
said by a guy here in Oregon, uh, Ken Couch. And so if I get to Idaho, that'd be cool. So I've been thinking about this. I've been thinking about this. And then last year, I walked uh, most of the Pacific Crest Trail at 2,473 miles, and I got snowed out in Stevens Pass, Washington. But the whole time you're walking, you know, you're, you're your heart's pumping, you got oxygen going, and your brain's like a neutral, right? So you got time to think, lots of time to think, hours a day. And I kept coming back to this idea that, you know, I could do this, I could solve this problem, this creates another problem, I could solve that problem, I would do this, I'd trade this for that, what about this? And I just kept, and I just, and I'm, finally, I said it out loud. I was, uh, I was in Oregon, this guy picked me up, I was hitchhiking somewhere, I don't know where I was going, and the guy, and one of the, popular questions on the trail about what are you going to do next right and i said it out loud and, and i said i'm going to try to set a world record in a launch air balloon and the guy thought it was cool I was, <laughs> he, he was up for it but when i said it out loud to a stranger that's when my life changed it was like flipping a switch okay so i kept working the ideas and i got off the trail and uh and of course i had a big dinner with my family and every same thing you know you know what are you going to do next and that's when I told my wife, and uh, you should have seen the look on her face. <laughs> um, you guys have airplanes, so you've probably seen that look before, right? So that this, <laughs> this, this is like the second stupidest thing you've ever done, right? <laughs> and this one's more dangerous, right? And how much is it going to cost? And I had this idea of doing like five flights. Uh, first one being just a test balloon with some instruments unmanned, then tethered, then it's kind of a hop and pop out of the backyard. And then one with all of the long distance kind of equipment. And then my, the plan was, and perhaps still is, if any of you guys have a checkbook you're not using, uh, is to do a five-day flight coast to coast. I really wanted to fly out of the Tillamook Air Base. Have you ever seen that old uh, blimp hangar in Tillamook? Cool place, good karma. I wanted to fly from uh, the Oregon coast and land in the Hudson River. My brother's uh, the sheriff there. He runs a marine unit. So that's where I wanted to go. I wanted to go from Oregon to New York. And I figured if I could do that, that's cool. I, that would be quite the record. So the plan was quite involved. Turns out uh, we're in the middle of a worldwide helium shortage. Uh, and it's a little more expensive than I thought. Uh, so I did get to do one flight. And I thought that I could probably still go for a record. And I just timed it to do it on my birthday. I'm, I'm, I just turned 60 years old. Uh, that would be just a good thing to do, right? So, uh, so I, as a day's approach, it was obvious it was like a no-wind day. Like I'm, I'm watching the weather wind, and I, I got the wind at altitude. I know where I'm going. You know, I can do it. And my goal was to fly from uh, the half hour before civil twilight to half hour after. It was like about... 17 and a half hours, something like that. June 21st is my birthday. This summer solstice is the longest day of the year. Is that cool or what, right? This gives me the longest possible flight envelope. I'm <laughs> going to do it then, okay? Uh, turns out I, I screwed up in ordering some of the components and lost, missed it by a day, flew the next day. And it was like the only day in modern history where there was like no wind to about 12,000 feet or something like that. But I got all these friends and family and people helping out, and it's the whole crowd here. And I was, I was launched at like four o'clock in the morning, so I go, I'm going anyway. I'm, I'm going to do it. So, so that's so. This was supposed to be the like third out of five flights, and it was actually the second. I did send up an instrument package with a camera and a GPS. We were able to uh, we were able to get temperature, uh, read GPS position, and get velocity and battery voltage we got that back as we and take pictures and then we were able to recover the class and, re, and learn quite a bit in doing that and that really did help uh, make things easier but they came around and it's like just no wind but we're going anyway okay so day of the event i mean it starts early i'm, I'm rigging this thing up but before that so i built this i just built this in my garage and and the, the craft itself uh so a pretty key thing for the unmanned thing uh, it had to be under 12 pounds. That just made everything easier. And for uh, to be in the ultralight rules, it had to be under 154 pounds. Uh, I worked with the FAA guys, and they were just great. Uh, they really were very helpful. And they didn't particularly 
care about my safety, but they just want to make sure that I didn't interfere with the rest of the world. And, um, and I, so they were really good, good to work with. So we had the plan and I was, my idea was to go to 12,000 feet. Uh, I had kind of in the background, I was going to pop up to 17,999 just because I can, but stay, you know, and but stay out of uh, positive controlled airspace. And it's kind of, and it's just, you know, see how far the wind takes me. That was, that was the big deal. I had oxygen. I had, had all the stuff planned out, right? Lots of planning. Day of the event, I'm like up to like three days straight, hardly sleeping at all. Uh, and then about a hundred people show up. Uh, and so it's like 60 working, 40 of them tripping over each other. But it's, it was a big event. It was a big event. And I got a, a balloon crew. I had, uh, the plan was like 88 four-foot diameter weather balloons. And then I had another 26-foot diameter ones. And, and half a dozen three-foot ones that I was going to use as well. And the idea was I could pre-program them by predicting their bursting diameters and they expand with altitude and then I could uh, have a series of intentional balloon pops so that as I approached 12,000 feet they'd start popping and that would automatically limit my altitude that was the plan okay you're probably guessing already things didn't go to plan uh, that may have happened once in your life I don't know this aviation stuff um, <laughs> So I'm using surplus weather balloons. After two years uh, on the shelf, they go out of date, and they're, you can buy them on eBay for you know a lot cheaper, but still quite expensive. Uh, and I, so I had this fill crew out there, and I set this gauges up so I knew the diameter I wanted, so I knew how much lift I was going to have. I knew when they would pop, and I had just basic lifting balloons. I had six that I had a computer control set up to where I could read altitude the GPS. And then I had a tank of water and I had six, eight foot balloons and solenoid valves. The idea being that if I needed to, uh, rise, I could just dump water or the computer would do it. Or if I was not going up fast enough, the computer, uh, and maybe we would dump water or the, the computer would dump helium. So all this stuff was should have been pre-programmed, should have worked perfectly, right? Okay. So at about 1 o'clock in the morning, I'm supposed to take off at about 4. I'm just, like, exhausted, right? And I said, okay, you guys are in charge. I'm going to take a nap. I took a shower, take a nap. I'm going to go to sleep, right? I get two hours of sleep, three hours of sleep. In that meantime, uh, these guys are filling these balloons, and they're popping prematurely. They're popping before they reach the, the, the diameter I had chosen, okay? So the fill captain says, okay, well, we're going to put less helium in them, okay, so they don't pop. He solved that problem, okay? I get out, okay, I'm ready to go, got my cold weather gear on, and there's like one-third of the helium is still in the driveway. I had uh, picked up 12,000 cubic feet of helium, enough to give me about 600 pounds of lift, uh, my craft and everything was about 100 pounds. I weigh 185, 190, uh, a little bit more. And I had gold weather gear and stuff like that. And and the rest was going to be ballast. And the idea being that when you use small balloons instead of one big one, you have a lot of surface area to volume ratio. So you'll, it leaks a lot. Latex, latex is uh, an organic compound. And helium is so small, it's, just, it's, just, it's porous, basically. So the idea was I'd be able to, all day long, just keep dumping. I had mostly sand ballast plus the water for the computer control part. So... I go to lift off, right? And uh, two things happen. One is we're out in the field in the backyard here, and the balloons just become soaked with condensation. They're out in the field. I get in the craft. We raise them above the craft. And if you ever saw the cartoon where there's a guy walking down the street with a little rain cloud over him, that was me. I'm sitting there. It's all bright, sunny out. The sun's coming up. And I'm the only guy in the rain. I got, a, I got a garbage bag over myself, and it's just pouring rain on me. Everything's getting soaking wet. Uh, my phone ended up dying, which becomes a critical thing later on. And everything is wet, a little bit heavy, and this craft won't rise, 
right? And if the crowd's out there, the helium's already spent, and all this energy and, and the craft won't take off, right? So bam, all the ballast goes, not enough. The big oxygen tank goes, not enough. The little oxygen tank goes. I get rid of, I get rid of all the food. I get, I'm planning on 18 hours here, right? <laughs> I, I even threw away the toilet paper, right? <laughs> Which was part of the plan. I, ha- I kept one of the bottles of water I kept all my cold weather gear, which turned out to be pretty smart. I kept the sunglasses. I kept one little handheld walkie-talkie radio. I had uh, a camera looking down, and I had the Joe Cam, uh, which I could record a video on my thoughts on it, and that had to go. I had these safety rails. That went. I threw my shoes away. Right? It was like the last thing to get us off the ground. And this thing was, it was a bare minimum craft to start with, and then we cut it in half. Uh, the craft itself was was pretty cool, actually. Uh, and I'm, I'm waving my hands around here as I'm talking, because I'm hoping you guys are getting the big picture. Uh, it was two sheets of one-eighth-inch plywood separated by about three-and-a-half inches to make a kind of like a, a sandwich. And so it was quite stiff, and I had outriggers that went out for the control balloons that I, could, that I would use to dump. I had, and I went through a lot of time finding the perfect launch hour. And because I had to sleep in it, I had to be, it had to be stable, it had to be strong, and it had to be comfortable in different positions. So I had the perfect launch air. Uh, I had uh, the rigging went around me in kind of a cone shape and collected about 12 feet above me and into would have been the, if it was the top of a helicopter, we'd call it the Jesus nut, right? It was like one connector where, they were, where everything was on that one connector. And then from there, I had a series of risers that went up that had six or 12 balloons on each riser, that, that sort of stuff. Uh, I had a BB gun. And just before we went up, someone goes, hey, well, will that BB gun actually shoot the balloons out? <laughs> kind of laugh, right? I said, of course it will. I tried it, and it didn't, right? The last minute, this guy gives me a 22 to take to shoot balloons out. Uh, and when we started losing the ballast, when, when I had to give up ballast, that, that went as well. So I, I lost my ability to, to pop the balloons as well. I had like nothing. I had one bottle of water. I had my little, my basic diabetes test kit stuff. I'm a, I'm a type 1 diabetic. Uh, I had sunglasses, some cold weather gear, and nothing else. Uh, I, had, I had a stick with a razor blade on the end of it. And, and that's really all I had. Um, Sounds like a Blues Brothers episode. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it just gets better, right? So, and, and, and still, you won't lift. And, 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 he, and I got a, a buddy who actually works with uh, hot air balloons. So he, and he's, no, no, it's going to work. It's going to work. It's going to work. And it's kind of drying out. I had a little bit of water left in this top thing. And little by little, these guys are lifting this thing. And it weighs now. It weighs several hundred pounds, but the net lift is like, you know, minus two pounds. You can lift it with your finger, but it keeps sinking back to the ground. But little by little, they're trimming off the ends of uh, the zip ties. They're cutting little pieces of string out. Like I said, I threw away my shoes, uh, get rid of everything. And finally, you know, I, I had this whole big speech plan for when we were going to lift about something about, you know, cutting the cord that bounds us to earth, you know, and I'm going to do this, my big dream thing. And then like all of a sudden, like, oh, I'm floating. And they start waving. And the crowd claps, you know, and like, okay, I'm floating. I finally got off the ground like three hours late. And it worked. I, I got off the ground. It was like a dream come true. I've been thinking about this for 30 years, right? 31 years. And this is like the second time in my life. Uh, I, I worked for something for so long, and then it actually really did happen it was it was just getting off the ground was quite the amazing thing i didn't really go anywhere i was like there's like zero wind i'm expecting to go zoring off to idaho but like i'm kind of like just floating around like i could see my backyard for about an hour fully going up about one meter per second which was uh excuse me uh yeah a meter per second was like 180 feet per minute which was kind of my goal i had that pre-program that part was working well um but then started to accelerate because things were drying out. And two things happened. One was the untested uh, control unit. It was on, while, while we were filling balloons, the guy was in my, in my, uh, in my kitchen. One guy saw there, and the other guy was programming this controller thing. It was, you know, it was all done the last minute, right? And I got it up there, and it would not 
drain helium fast enough. Because really, the helium inside of a, a balloon, a latex balloon, the delta P is like almost nothing. So there wasn't, I had, everything was tubed and plumbed correctly, and the valves were opening, but there wasn't enough pressure to make a significant drain. So now I'm going up, right? I don't have the GPS anymore. I, there was a, the control system had a GPS, and it, it actually did have a readout that I can kind of look at, but it was like I couldn't see it in the sun, so the guys, the guys were able to pick it up. Uh, it's actually, it actually recorded and dumped directly into the internet, so anybody in the world could look at the internet and see it live, see my live updates. So they were watching, right? Uh, watching this internet access and live, and say, okay, you're you know you're at three thousand, you're at six thousand, you're at nine thousand, and then um, kept going up, kept going up, going up, and now okay, well you know you're at nine thousand, and I hear a balloon pop. Okay, that's good, like planned. We know one or two more, but instead of leveling off at twelve thousand feet, I'm I'm still going up. I'm going up, you know, like about maybe two hundred, three hundred feet per minute. You know, way faster and higher than I wanted to be. So now I'm getting a little bit nervous, you know, I'm not stupid. <laughs> Crazy but not stupid is kind of the team motto here. Uh, so my control system isn't working, so I take my stick with the razor blade and I start popping my, con my control balloons. And that slows me down, but I'm still going up. And finally, about 19,000 feet or so, I'm a, I've, I've already crossed the Rubicon at that point. Uh, I get a little, now I'm a little more than nervous. Uh, I pop everything except for uh, one, uh, maybe two of the control balloons. So that's, that's the only control I have left is those two balloons. But I can see that I'm decelerating. So I decide to, I'm just going to wait it out. Uh, and it's going to, you know, helium is going to leak. It's going to go down eventually. So I'm just going to sit tight. I have no oxygen. Uh, I am warm enough. I, I, I had planned for that. I'm good for that. I don't really know what's going to happen next, but I'm kind of cool. And I ended up going up, uh, I think like 21,194 feet or something like that. Uh, I have it recorded somewhere, but I guess where I eventually topped it and it just starts slowly coming down, but I still wasn't going anywhere. I'm still like right in Clark County here. I never left Clark County. Actually, I got this Canadian County. That's my... That makes, I guess that makes it cross country. Uh, so, so I, it was just a beautiful flight though. I mean, it's just amazing. It's a beautiful day. It was quiet. I mean, the, it was the craft was stable. I was able to get up and, you know, relieve myself over the side. I mean, the first time I was scared in the bottle, right? That's the only ballast I had was actually was that one little bottle. Uh, and then, you know, I was able, I could stand up in the craft and, uh, you know, move around a little bit. You know, it was great. I had planned on doing all these exercises to keep my blood flowing, you know, because I knew I'd be in there for 18 hours. It was going to be cold. And uh, it actually, the craft worked great, you know, other than I couldn't control the altitude. And I was just kind of floating around the neighborhood. It's kind of cool. One, one commercial plane goes by. I could just hear the guy, imagine the guy say, if you look at your left, you'll see something you never saw before. Uh, people uh, are calling me, got a few people on the, uh, there was a bunch of uh, local um, radio guys that were kind of following me, stuff like that. So I'm just talking to people, I'm chatting, you know, and, and, uh, and but I'm still really going nowhere. So I get to the Cascades. The Cascades is a mountain range that runs north and south separates eastern Oregon, western Oregon, eastern Washington, the dry side and the wet side, basically, if you've been out here in the world. And I'm just like stuck in between Mount Hood and Mount St. Helens, and I'm going nowhere. And so eventually I just start kind of coming down, you know, and I'm looking around there, oh, yeah, I'll probably land in this valley over here somewhere, you know. Oh, I, I think I'm going to land in this side of this mountain over here, and oh, I'm going to land that tree right there. And all of a sudden, like, I'm coming right to it. And it's just... It's kind of all in slow motion, though, right? So I get down, and and it's like if you're landing, you can see a spot on your windshield, then you know that's your glide path, right? It's not moving. So I'm watching this one tree, and I can see I'm heading right for that tree, okay? I brace myself, and I'm thinking, okay, head down, no. Hands here, no. Hands around my arteries, no. What do I do? You know, like, I kind of had this, I live in the evergreen state, so a tree landing was certainly a higher probability kind of thing, right? Um, 
And I do remember, you know, from being a paratrooper, you know, trying to protect your arteries when you go through the trees. So I, I'm, I'm like experimenting with all these different crash positions, right? And just as I just about to hit the tree, I realized the last time I got up to relieve myself, I didn't put my seatbelt back on. So I just, I just grabbed the two ends of my belt and I cinched myself tight. But I'm going like so slow that I have enough time to, as I'm going through the trees, I could tie a square knot as I'm going through the trees. And I ended up coming crashing through these evergreens. And it's just after being so quiet, you know, and so still, it's just an amazing amount of noise. The plywood is like a big sounding board, kind of like a, built like a guitar. And I come crashing through and I stop, you know, and I'm, I'm okay, I'm cool. I breathe and it, bam, crash some brakes. And I come crashing another three feet. And, but the whole time, I was pretty stable and pretty upright because I'm still being suspended above me by a couple hundred pounds of lift. So I'm only pushing through the top of the trees with just a few pounds of negative uh, buoyancy. And finally, after a half a dozen just heart-rendering you know, crashes and I'm going to die kind of things, I end up being suspended in a tree about 50, 60 feet off the ground, pretty much stable. If I lean back a little bit, I feel like I'm going to fall. And I'm, and I'm, but I'm okay. I'm down. Well, actually, I'm not really down, but I'm, I'm no longer in the air. And that's the only time I was really scared. It was like, okay, either that last 60 feet, that 10,000, 20,000 feet, that didn't bother me at all. This is when I could see the ground and I could know that these branches would be just poking right through my body as like I'm crashing through. That scared me. Other than that, it was just a beautiful flight. I, I, I can't tell you how wonderful it was to A, to accomplish a dream, and then B, it was just kind of a cool flight. And if you ever have done a hot air balloon or something like that, you know, you kind of get that, get that part. It was just wonderful. Until I got stuck in a tree. Okay. Very cool. <laughs> okay, I've got to ask. Awesome. So, so go ahead, tell, go me, tell, me the, tell me again the getting down the 60, last 60 feet. So, Because so, <laughs> I get that it's scary, and then you got to do something, or something's, something's going to happen. So, unless, so, yeah. unless you're still so, podcasting from that same tree, which yeah, is so, quite uh, a feat. So as it turns out, uh, I kept going in and out of radio contact because once I started coming down, I was like under some pretty far from Portland. I could see PDX from where. Matter of fact, for a while I thought I was going to drift into it. I was getting kind of getting kind of nervous, but I could see PDX in front of me. I'm by the Columbia River, and uh, and I can kind of read the GPS coordinates off of my control system. And then just before I'm going down, I made contact with one of my guys. I said, Dave, Dave, go write this down. Okay. And I gave the GPS coordinates and I lost him. And then, uh, and then I come crashing through the trees and I'm stopped and I'm sitting there. And, uh, one of the guys who had helped me previously, he was driving around and he was able to make radio contact because he was close. So I gave him the radio contacts. My other guy, uh, Dave, he's like up all night. He's like exhausted. He, he gets home and then he hears this frantic call, write down these coordinates. He doesn't know what to do. He calls 911. They call this guy. They call that guy. They call this guy. And they call the, uh, I think it's called the uh, Mount St. Helens uh, something rescue service, volunteer rescue group. And these are guys that they get stuck hikers and people who go over the cliffs and the raft and they rescue, they rescue good people doing good things and they rescue a lot of idiots doing stupid stuff. So that's, that's their job. Their job is to get people in places that they shouldn't be. And they were just wonderful. They were great. So I'm in this tree for like hours. Right. And then finally this guy gets the radio and, and finally the, uh, the volcano rescue guys, you know, they show up and then uh, I'm on the radio. Okay. Well, you know, he honks his horn. Can you hear me? No. Yeah. You're in the Southwest, but you're far away. You know, like, I don't really know exactly where I am. I'm describing the terrain. And finally, this, they, they, they locate me by the sound of their horn and try to find a nearest road. This guy hikes down. This guy like walks out of the woods, got a radio in his hand, looks up and says, oh, guy in the tree. Haven't seen that before. And he calls on the radio, calls his buddies, you know. These guys come down. They got these great big bags of stuff. You know, they lay it down, lay the equipment down. And they're talking, yeah, we'll do this. We'll tie a belay over here. We'll do this over here. We'll cut this over here. We'll put a rope over here. You do this, right? And they're like, just like 
this is what they do, man. And they, they, they had the tools. They knew what they were doing. It was teamwork. It was like, and I'm just watching, right? I'm an engineer. I, I'm trying to solve problems, right? And uh, it was just great. And then and one guy goes, yeah, and I'll bag them. I'm thinking, oh, that's me. I'm going to get bagged. <laughs> so they send the guy up the nearest tree. They need a tree that's closest to me, right? And what, he's got these little spiky things on his legs, right? So every time he hits that the tree with a spike, the tree shakes, my craft shakes, I'm ready to fall. I'm thinking, I'm going to die right in front of him, right? At least they'll get a good picture of it. Otherwise, I'd die by myself. So at least they'll be able to see it. You know, that's the only constant, my only constellation, I'd be able to die in public. So, but he gets up there and he gets about, he gets to my height, right? And he's, and he, I can't quite reach him. He's a couple arm waist legs. So I'm, I'm through the branches. He's on the nearest, nearest big tree. And he starts talking, you know, and he sees I, I had a real, I had like a climber's harness on. I, have, I was built it in. I had a safety line to the apex. So I was pretty safe in the sense that if the craft was staying there, I wasn't going to fall out. Had I even turned upside down, I would have been uncomfortable, but I would have been safe. So, you know, I had a couple of safety features built in. So I talk to the guy, and uh, I go, yeah, well, you know, we can just kind of tie over here. This and the guy looks at me and goes, well, we have our own protocols, which was kind of like saying, okay, we got this part of it. And sure enough, they knew just what to do. The guy, go, guy goes above me. First, he throws me a safety line. He goes above me, ties off, and runs a pulley up there, then runs a lead line up down to that and down to me. So now I'm hooked to that one. The guy on the ground ties a blade to something else, and, and they can take my weight. So then I have to leave the craft, my home for the last eight hours. Scary as it was, it's all pretty safe. I have to step off the craft into space and then swing into the tray until he gets me. And I trusted him, so I did it. <laughs> you didn't have a lot of options, really, you know. And uh, I, I was thinking, oh, could I cut this? Would, you know, would, I, would I tumble? And a tumbling would I, was what I feared, right? Uh, but really, it was pretty non-dramatic at that point, once, once, once he got me hooked up. So he'd, I jump, I step off the craft. He's got my weight. I swing into the tree and basically I just walked down the tree where this guy had my weight. I get to the ground, I get to my knees and I just had to pee. That was what I had to do. <laughs> so, uh, and that was it. I'm done. I'm home. Right. The craft is still in the tree. Right. I couldn't get it out at the point. So the craft that we left with the craft still up there and you know, we went back out a couple of days later. So I do have it home now. Yeah, but it was just, it was cool. It was just good to watch those guys work as well. It was just, you know, it's good to have professionals on your team, <laughs> whether they're volunteers or wow. not. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Joe, so you, how you long talked did this take, this whole process of getting you out of the tree? Uh, so I was there probably for two or three hours, four hours before somebody came. And it took about an hour, you know, to kind of figure stuff out, get, equipment get up there rig some lines and in about like 11 seconds to walk down you know something like that so uh then I, and I, and I, well you know <laughs> i spent a lot of time enjoy inside the view <laughs> I, I spent a lot of time inside my own head you know <laughs> so i had so first of all i was thinking okay i i really thought i'm gonna die here okay and i thought you know that's okay. You know, if I die here now doing this, that's good. That'll look good in the paper. You know, <laughs> when people, when people tell the story, what your grandfather do, you know, that, that'd be a good story. Uh, so I'm just, you know, I, I wasn't thinking about the next flight, to be honest with you. Although I still, still comes to mind from time to time. Uh, being, keeping my mind occupied was not a problem at all. Huh. Hey Joe, you know, it, this is absolutely fascinating. The story of, of of ascending and then coming down and and getting stuck in a tree. But, you know, I tell you, as I've been listening to you, it's like, gosh, this would be so cool. I mean, balloons are great. I've been up on a balloon, hot air balloon, but man, that would be so neat to learn how to fly something like this. I, I guess, how does somebody go about doing that? I mean, is there like an organization that's together that helps people like me that so would want to try to learn? So I did some research going on here, and the general, the general sort of attitude among most uh, 
cluster balloon that says, don't ask me any questions. There are too many lawyers and you know, there are more lawyers than there are smart people. So just, just, I won't help you, but I'll tell you what I did kind of stuff. But it's basic physics, right? PV equals MR prime T. If you right. know that, everything flows from there, right? <laughs> It's all you have to know. PV equals MR prime T, and that's and, and everything flows from that. And and feel free to ask me questions. Anybody can. I have a little. Uh, you can call my website or something like that. Uh, and I would absolutely help someone. And in fact, one guy did. There is a guy who is interested in doing it, and I've given him all the advice I possibly can, because uh, I because I believe the evolution of aviation, you know, came from learning from other people's experiences. Right, so I believe that'd be, that. That'd yeah. be so cool to have on your your flight instructor certificate, lawn chair pilot, flight instructor. Right. I think we yeah, should, yeah. you know, go to the FA and ask him about that. You know, hey, hey, I got a one more question actually. From yeah. I have a small audience here. I'm actually at my crash pad here in in Queens, and one of the one of the captains here, uh, of course, he's Jeff. His name is. He wants to know when you're up in the air. How about the airlines? Are you ever concerned about running into any of the big airplanes out there? And obviously, he's got a concern about this whole <laughs> flying in a launcher, maybe bumping into oh. him while he's up there. So, so I thought about that. I went to the FAA and said, hey, what do we do? And so basically, the plan was, if you stay below, so I have an airline guy who, who calls the, the space between like 12,000 feet, the place below that, the bozo zone, right? Because anybody could be there. And anywhere above 10, 10, 10 or 12,000 feet, there's just not that much traffic there until you get to 18,000 feet and above. So the idea was to be in that zone where there wasn't anybody. Uh, before we left, uh, I did a notum. I, we called Seattle Center, and we called Portland Traffic Control, told them we're doing. I had uh, aluminum pie plate kind of things as radar reflectors, because otherwise there's really hardly any metal in the whole thing. Um, so I had these, uh, radar reflectors on there and I told everybody what I was doing. And just before we launched, we said, Hey, we're launching now. We're eight miles north of the battleground VOR, you know, and we're going south. We gave them our, our anticipated directions. So we did what we could to communicate to the world and then just hope that they stay out of our way. Right. And, uh, I only saw one commercial guy go by. I saw several private people below me, and they probably had no clue. Otherwise, they probably would have turned around and looked. Uh, so all I did was try to make myself visible. And then I, then I have no control. I was concerned about wake turbulence. That was, that was my concern. Because it was a pretty fragile craft by design, you know. Interesting. Yeah, the pie... That's a great idea about the reflectors, I guess. And a lot of guys keep their, uh, you know, radars on down low to see if uh, there's any big flocks of birds. And obviously, they'd see you with all the reflectors on there too. So that that probably helped there if they had their had all their uh, radar on at that point. That's that's pretty fascinating, though. That was uh, you you thought through a lot. Obviously, the engineer is coming out. You thought through all these different processes and all. But it it actually it's it's a simple process, like you said. But it but it really isn't it because. As as you did, you the went up and, and you found out there are things you didn't plan for, and that that's, yeah. And, and the devil is in the details, right? It's like you gotta think of what could go. I did not take a parachute. That was one thing we agonized over for a long time. I did not take a parachute, um, and there were just so many. And it's all about weight, right? One to lift one gram of weight takes a liter of helium. That's just to get off the ground. To sustain it takes another 30 or 40% because of the leakage rate. So weight was everything. Uh, I think the craft weighed maybe 40 pounds when they got done. It was like nothing. It was all, it was all about ballast. Ballast equaled time. Time equaled distance. So the craft was, the craft was as fragile as, as I could make it. Uh, one of my early epiphanies was, Anybody can build a bridge, but only an engineer can build one that can barely stand. And that's what we try to do. We try to make something that would just barely survive. And, and it worked pretty much. Pretty speaking much. Of, speaking of prepping and stuff, um, I actually assisted uh, John Nino Mia do one of his cluster balloon launches. 
And I was just kind of curious um, what you think the difference is between you and the other uh, cluster balloon pilots are out there. Do you guys usually use the same concepts, the same type of equipment, or is it kind of more of a free-for-all? You uh, all do your own thing. So A, one is money. Uh, B, this John guy, he's the grandfather of this category, and he's and he has really pioneered quite a bit. Uh, he and most people use a hang gliders uh, kind of suspension rig. They don't use a lawn chair, uh, which is certainly lighter and is built for that sort of thing. Uh, being the retro guy that I am, I really wanted to use the lawn chairs. That kind of, that set the structure for me. Um, so I, there's one guy who I think went to 24,000 feet, and I believe on purpose. Uh, I went to 21,000 by accident, but I did a lawn chair. So, so that, that may be a lawn chair record. Uh, and people use, uh, there's a, a much better balloon. Uh, the ones they use for advertising, and there are uh, chloroprene, I believe. And they're kind of a PVC compound. They're heavier, they don't leak, and they're much more UV resistant. But they're way more expensive, and, and this is really a, sh a shoestring budget thing. Um, and I had some people chipping a little bit, but basically this is this is out of my retirement, and my wife wasn't happy about it. any single portion of this. Using the money was just just one one more thing to make it worse. So they use better they use better balloons, they use better equipment, um, but it's fundamentally the same. The idea of cluster ballooning is you use lots of small balloons and readily available kind of stuff. That's great, though, that you're able to do it on such a small budget. So it kind of leaves hope for other people out there who wants to do it themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's doable. Um, and you can certainly do it in a small scale. Um, you don't have to. I was, try, I was trying to set a record. That was kind of my plan. That was the goal. So you can do it and just get off the ground. And really... It's just getting off the ground that counts, you know. It's just that first, wow, that that minute. Somewhere in your lives, everyone has had that moment, and it could be any one of a dozen different situations. But that one spot where you say, "I did this. I I I dreamt it. I figured it out, and I accomplished it, and I did it." And this really is a dream come true. That was, you know, every, everybody should do that once. I, you know. And there's lots of ways to go about it. That worked for me. You know, when uh, researching about your flight, I came across there's a band called the Lawn Chair Pilots Band. That's is, correct. Uh, is that related to you? Is it because of? No, 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 no. I, and I, I had not heard about that until I tried to make the. I tried to do a website oh. called that. That's how I found them. Oh. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, and I actually, uh, I never even heard the music. <laughs> I think I wrote to them once, but I never got any back. Ah, for shame. Yeah. yeah, and it's doable, you know. Um, I would, I was, I would certainly do it again. And I, I really do have this plan to make. Uh, to, I could do a five-day flight. I think a little bit differently, but I could do a five-day flight. That's what I would, I would love to do. Joe, when when you were up there, especially when you get up in those higher altitudes, you mentioned twenty-one thousand. You saw a airliner go by. What's I mean, are you stable? Is it swinging? And and what and what's going through your mind? What what kind of you know sensations or emotions are you feeling there? Yeah. So the altitude above a couple hundred feet became a non-factor, other than oh, I can see this lake. I know where that is. You know, because really, once you're off the ground, you're off the ground. So mm -hmm. everyone's oh, well, you're scared to be that high, and you're really no. I mean, being close to the ground is way scarier. I mean. Like like most people, if I climb a ladder, I'm like petrified, you know, because yeah, you can you can visualize getting hurt. If you're at if you're at 500 feet or 5,000, you know, 10,000, it makes no difference. Uh, so that wasn't worried. There was there's no relative wind unless there's some kind of wind change. So if the wind's going 100 miles an hour, you're going 100 miles an hour over the ground, but you, you're still you're 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 going with the air mass. Right. Every now and then the balloons would rustle above me and that would kind of make me nervous, you know, but I got used to that after a while. That wasn't a big deal. Uh, I was worried about, you know, birds flying them. That was a possibility that could have happened, but I hardly saw any birds, certainly not once I got, got above, uh, above a couple thousand feet. Uh, so 
and I was able to move around on the craft and it would change as my center of gravity changed, but it was stable. It was, you know, like a rock. I was suspended by a single point. So I'm at the bottom of the pendulum. So it was, it was nice. It was easy. That's, that's part of what made it so beautiful. And, and that vantage point, I mean, you know, you mentioned watching planes go beneath you and the, I mean, yeah. what was that like watching things go by? And I guess, could you estimate how close they were, do you think? Uh, I've always been terrible at that, but yeah, so no, so no one was, no one was close. The guy that went by with the commercial guy, he had to be five miles away, close enough that I could, I could see the windows on the craft, you know, and my eyes aren't that great, but that was, but that was still, I, it was like a twin engine turboprop kind of thing. He was he wasn't flying high. At that point, I was maybe only ten, twelve, thirteen thousand feet. So he was probably going to Portland, Seattle, or something like that. Could you hear him as as they went by? I mean, that that uh, that for, fascinates actually, me. Yeah, actually, uh, you know, I don't I don't recall that. Uh, I probably did, but it doesn't. It certainly wasn't loud. It was in general quite quiet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could talk to people. As I was leaving, you know, they sang me happy birthday. Uh, mm-hmm. Once I got up, uh, that was not a problem. Yeah, so it was, it was in general quite quiet. No wind, you know. It's kind of a perfect sunny day. Nice, June 22nd. Very Joe, cool. you said you, that perspective, just like Sean was talking about, you'd been a paratrooper. Is that what you said? That's correct. You jumped, and yeah. so you were talking about not feeling that high off the ground and, and that fear of heights. Cause I, I actually have a fear of heights and, and it is that last 30 feet that I think is the toughest. And yeah. we're, is, how about jumping out of an airplane? Is that somewhat comparable? Can you compare the two? Is it similar to that? Like, is it not scary the first jump? And then when you get close to the ground, you're like, Oh, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm so, going to be landing soon. <laughs> so, so for sure, my second jump was by far the scariest because the first jump, like you have like no idea what's going on and all this stuff is new and, and everything is, everything is unique in them. Uh, my first jump was a C-141, you know, and, and that's all I like, captured all at once. So that was all a big blur. The second jump I knew was going on and that just scared the heck out of me. Uh, and like the scariest thing I've ever done was uh, on my 21st birthday, I stood in the door of a C-130. And there you have, that's the only, the only guy who consciously exits is the guy standing in the door. Everybody else, the guy in front of him goes, the guy back is pushing, everybody just goes, right? So the guy who stands in the door, he has to jump. And that's, that, was, that was kind of scary. And we were jumping, uh, 1,200 feet was like the minimum, you know, 1,800 feet kind of stuff. And you're above the ground, and it's when when the ground starts to rush up at you, when you get below the tree line, when, when suddenly the horizon just fills your face, that's what, that's what makes your heart stop. So it's close to the ground. Being high up, there's no immediate danger. There's nothing, there's no sharp point thing about to kill you. When you get close to the ground, that, that's what scares the heck out of you. That's my observation. Wow. wow. You know, how, how many of these jumps did you do? Uh, 30 something. I don't know. Uh, wow. did some, some, uh, civilian jumps when I got, when I got out just for fun. Oh. And, uh, how long were you in? Two years. Uh, I volunteered for Vietnam, but, uh, didn't get to go. I was, uh, oh. too late. It took, well. it took me an extra year to make my mind up. I was 19 when I went in and, uh, so I, I missed Vietnam. I was in basic training when Nixon said no more troops going and they wouldn't let me out. I was stuck. <laughs> well, I should <laughs> appreciate your uh, service. Oh, thank you. And volunteering for that. That's, yeah. that's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, Joe, I had a question, um, partially pertaining to the altitude, because at first, uh, you know, you said the intent was to go up to 17,999 feet. You had made preparations. You had onboard oxygen. You were aware of the, uh, you know, the planning and the effects of hypoxia. Uh, but during the launch phase of, uh, of the platform that day, you literally shed everything, including your shoes and oxygen and the kitchen sink. What... Um, you know, you planned for it, like I said, but what was your actual experience in, in crossing 21,000 feet uh, without oxygen? How, how did you feel? So, like most hypoxia victims, I had no clue. Uh, I thought <laughs> I, was, I was perfectly fine. Uh, the people that was talking the radio, they thought I sounded like I was drunk. Um, so I, I couldn't tell if that was because now I'm far away on the radio. I, you know, but I thought 
I was fine. I was not exerting myself. I wasn't making, I was making some decisions, but I didn't have any tools to work with. So I thought it was perfectly fine. I've been to 196 mountain climbing before, but that took days to get there. Um, I camped on top of Mount Hood once, you know, that's 12,000, 11,000 feet. Um, so I don't, I can't say that I'm aware of any issues, but I'm the wrong person to ask because, I, you know, you need to, you need to have been uh, there testing. And I had this plan. The plan was I had a guy, he's a pilot, and he was like my ground guy. And we made this list of questions, you know, what's your brother's birth date and stuff like that. And if I couldn't answer those questions, he was going to give me a code word that said, we understood that to mean pull the plug to send now. We, we never actually worked it out. That was part of the initial plan in the phrase. I've never really worked it out. But the idea was there was a guy who was a pilot, and he, he alone was the guy I trusted to make this level of decision. He would not be scared. He would be able to use good judgment. And if I couldn't answer his questions, he would command me and hope I obeyed to descend. That was part of the plan. As it turns out, I had no means of descending, so it wouldn't have helped anyway. Uh, and the only, there were, the only thing that I really could have used a parachute for was the condition of uncontrolled ascent. There were two things. One is that I just fall out of the craft. You know, if I fell out by accident, which was, I had, besides my seatbelt, I did have a safety line above me from the apex to my waist, so I really couldn't have fallen out too easily. Uh, if all my balloons just suddenly popped all at once, I probably couldn't exit. I've been in a, a tangle of spaghetti. I probably couldn't have exited anyway. So we chose not to take a parachute, and the uh, and the uncontrolled ascent was the was the was the only risk that was not covered. And the idea then, you know, I, I just shoot the balloons out. That was kind of the, the plan. So to answer your question, I have no idea. Well, I was actually just looking because I, uh, it's funny, I was going through some recurrent training modules for the airline that I work for this afternoon. And part of that was talking about um, rapid decompressions and the such. And so I just went back to look it up. And it was, it talks about here that the time of useful consciousness at an altitude, uh, this chart shows me at 22,000 feet, so close to where okay. you were. The right. time of useful consciousness is about between five to 10 minutes. Um, really? And then after that, I guess, you know, it, it's never been my experience personally, but I guess after that, you just kind of fall asleep uh, the way I understand, understand that. But um, yeah, that's pretty, I mean, like I said, you had it all planned out and, and, Plans don't always go as they intend, but uh, that was actually a question that some of us were curious about was was how you felt up there. So uh, really, really, and I, really and fascinating. I, and I felt fine. Uh, I knew it'd be cold, and I and I did not, I did not ditch my cold weather gear, and I felt good about that. So, oh, you know what? what? The, so, what would you even know what the temperature was up there to get? Because like, it doesn't sound like you had any of your instruments anymore. Instrumentation. No, I had. I had a I had a water bottle and it did not freeze, <laughs> but uh, but 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 I had this transponder not a transponder but I had this radio, uh, the the controls I had I had two separate GPSs they had two separate power supplies, and one of them uh, the one for the control system one was the control system the other one tracked location and dumped it to the internet that one crapped out on on the descent and it was out for hours and then suddenly turned back on again after I'd been in the tree for about an hour. And what we theorize is that froze, possibly from the water, from the initial uh, condensation, that froze and then thawed out again. That's, that's what we theorize. We don't know for sure because it went out and then suddenly came back on working fine. I had a water bottle uh, and it, had, it must have at least a few drops of water and it never froze. But it was certainly cold. I, I put everything on I had. Uh, I had prepared for that. And, and so it had to be cold. I, I imagine it would have been the standard temperature range. It could have been too much different from, the, from what, the, what the charts say. So it would have been just below freezing, you know, 17 degrees. I think we, we figured out something like that. 
Right. Yeah. And again, because it was, it was still a, you know, midsummer day, if you will. So, but it was yeah. still, it was early. How, well, you said you had a, about a three hour delay uh, in getting launched. So what time did you actually uh, get airborne? So I, so I launched, the sun was up, uh, maybe 7 a.m., something like that. Okay. Eight o'clock. Yeah. So I would have peaked at about three or four hours later, something like that, two hours later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was still early morning. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so, you know, it don't doesn't sound like that you've made a second flight yet. No, not yet. Uh, <laughs> yet being the operative word there. Because <laughs> what are you, what are your plans? So, I would love to do this again. I mean, just just to put in the craft together, uh, just the idea of doing it. And I would, you know, and like anything else, you just learn, right? That's what engineers do. You learn, and yeah, I can do that better. I have no actionable, immediate plans to do this. I would love to. I'm going to Burning Man next week. That's my next big thing. And then uh, right after that, I'm going to go back, and uh, I have 186 miles to go on the Pacific Crest Trail to get to Canada. I'm going to do that next. So that gets me into into October. So that's, that's as far as I can that's as far as I can think. <laughs> you need some more hobbies. Gosh, wow! So I do either that or, either that or a job. <laughs> <laughs> Your wife. Uh, yes, yeah, and she has a preference there. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Um, that seriously fascinating. Fascinating. Like I said, uh, when I did some research uh, before we had you on the show, there's about. Um, a, um, I think six who've done the fly, the flying lawn chair design. Clearly, there's there's quite a large group out there um, involved in cluster ballooning. But uh, from what I could see, at least six prominent lawn chair pilots. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, you've kind of you know you are part of aviation history in that regard. Um, do you uh, you do you do have a blog where you've uh, shared some of the building of the craft and some of the math and everything behind that? Uh, we generally. Sh- uh, you know, share those things uh, on the show here. Tell us uh, what's your website. Uh, I think you have a Facebook page and all that stuff. If somebody wanted to get in touch with you, whether to, uh, you know, to, to brainstorm and, and build a sure. craft of their own or whatever, um, you know, what are, what are the methods of contact? Uh, so two things. So they, there is this, uh, my daughter did a Facebook, I'm not a Facebook guy. Uh, my daughter did a Facebook page for me. Uh, that's Launcher Pilots or something like that. And you can find me there to get this, get questions to me. And absolutely, I would encourage people to learn from others. So I, I am more than willing to help out anybody in any any way I can. Uh, and my, my, I'll give you my email address. It's uh, Barbara J, B-A-R-B-E-R-A at T-D-S, Thomas Delta Sam dot net feel free to send me line and, and i'll help you i can i've got spreadsheets on top of spreadsheets and top of spreadsheets um and uh, that'd be the best way and really i if anybody is thinking about this you know send me your thoughts i'll help you out <laughs> i'm inspired i want to do this i i don't know whether or not i will or if cluster ballooning is a good intermediary but it's just too exciting to uh it's too interesting of an idea yeah um to not uh, not pursue. Fascinating, fascinating. Um, Joe, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show today. I mean, your story is is as is, is, is unique as they've come, probably one of the more unique uh, interviews we've had here on the show. The After Landing Checklist. If, uh, if anybody's looking to reach us here at the uh, podcast specifically, you can visit stuckmikeavcast.com forward slash contact. On that page, there is a field where you can submit an email, send us your questions, comments, or show ideas. We also have the mailing address, the telephone number, and all of the individual co-host contact information right there at that page. Uh, from myself, Len Costa, Carl Valeri, Rick Felty, Victoria Zyko, Sean Moody, and our flying lawn chair pilot, Joe Barbera, thank you all for tuning in to episode number 55 of the Stuck Mike Avcast, and we wish you clear skies and calm winds. Take care.
You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Abcast is an aviation podcast brought to you by thepilotreport.com, a Len Costa production.